I did learn some things about uh, university administration, how centralized it is, how dependent on funding it is, how, uh, how it's closed down a lot of openness and free speech. And, uh, and so I don't feel anger over that. I feel sadness. I think we've lost something as a society. So, and I guess my conclusion is, is there any way that I can help bring that back? Hey, Power Hour fam. What a wonderful conversation in store for you today. I chat with Joel Peterson, and he is a family man. He's been married to his wife for 50 years. He and Diane together have seven children and 31 grandkids. He's also a leader. He's led JetBlue as chairman of their board of directors for 12 years. He stepped down in 2020, led them through various challenges. He's founded Peterson Partners, which has over 3 billion of assets under management. He's been doing that for 27 years and invested in over 250 companies across industries. He is a professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, been doing that for as long as I've been alive, for 31 years, and lots more of experience. He was the CEO of the largest real estate development firm. He was the head of Hoover Board of Overseers and much more. So you get the gist, very experienced leader, has been through lots of trying times, ups and downs, litigation, et cetera, and tons of perspectives that he brings to the table to us today. So appreciate his time. And even more so, I really appreciated how authentic he was, how honest he was with me today. We didn't know each other before this conversation, but I thought we really got to speak honestly with one another. Most interesting to me is our conversation around cancel culture, the downsides of it, and how do we create a society that embraces healthy debate? How do we have healthy debate with one another? And where do institutions fall in cultivating that, in helping leaders and young folks gain these skills? Joel also gives a lot of advice to folks in today's economic day and age with the recession and upcoming, to folks that have been laid off or are worried about being laid off, as well as entrepreneurs that are building on what to look out for, what to remember, what to embrace. Really, really wonderful conversation. Enjoy it, guys. Here's Joel Peterson. Hi, Joel. Hi, Jen. How are you? I'm great. I am very happy to have you on with me today. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. We've got tons to get through that I'm looking forward to. So I was thinking we would just dive in. Does that work for you? Yeah. Amazing. I've already given listeners context into your background, so I won't have you sit through it again. Very impressive background. And for me personally, as a student at Stanford Business School, Graduate School of Business, I remember one of your last lectures, and this was one that you gave 13 years ago, and it really stuck with me. You shared with students about how to pursue happiness and not just any kind of fleeting feeling, but the kind that stays with you and is more durable. And I wanted to come back to that for the purposes of this discussion and use it maybe as our backbone. And for context for listeners, I'll share, you gave a metaphor of there are three legs to the stool of happiness. The first one being having a person to be, so someone who you feel really called to become with a purpose, and I'll call that being. The second leg was having a person to love, which we'll call loving. And the third was having a work to do, which I'll call doing. And you went into several thoughts of how to get to building each of these legs that make up the stool. I found it a great framework for how to think about life and how to just plan yourself one step at a time and, and make daily decisions. 
So today I'd love to focus on doing and being. Um, and for, sorry? Not loving? <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like we would need another one to get into all of that. And I love that you and Diana have been together for 50 years. You have seven kids and 31 grandkids. So you're such an expert on loving. <laughs> there are lots to learn from you there. Uh, but on maybe on doing, I coming back to Diana, you mentioned a fun story that you both developed a Peterson manifesto, which Machin and I will steal. We just got married in August, but you use this manifesto to help you both make decisions on how to raise your children, structure your family. Feels like a very type A thing to do. We're both very type A. <laughs> Can I ask you on that note to share what your personal mission is, Joel? You know, I've never written up a, a mission statement. I've always seen them uh, published in these companies on whose boards I've served. And more often than not, they create cynicism because companies claim they're going to do something, then they fall short. So people yeah. view them and then they say uh, they're cynical. So I've really focused more on what I would like my brand to be. Mm. So thinking about your brand. And I, I've often told students to think about the five words that they would love to be known for in their lives. And so as I've thought about that, I, I, I really felt like I want, to be tr I want to be seen as trusted, as wise, as competent, as caring, as and as reliable. And all those things, if you think about, those are the kind of the constellation of what it takes to be a great fiduciary, to be someone mm -hmm. that people will trust to take care, not only of their financial assets and well-being, but really being a fiduciary for another person. That's really a, a kind of a contract of care that you have with other human beings. And so to me, you could probably generate a mission statement out of that. But the way I've always thought of it in my own personal life is, what brand attributes do I want to own by the end of my life? Totally. And what comes to mind for me is how, for instance, being trusted, being reliable is something that you build with time. Very yep. easy to lose, but takes a ton of time to build. So I can imagine how having that at the forefront will help you shape that brand for yourself. On this note of leadership, you mentioned fiduciaries. You teach, you've taught for 31 years on leadership at the GSB, and you are a leader. You've been a leader for decades over various industries. What are some of the formative moments that you feel have defined the type of leader that you've become today? So there's so many of them. And by the way, I would just say, Jen, that I think uh, people who go to the GSB are leaders only by, fact, by the fact that people are watching them. You know, yeah. they, they put themselves in a position to be examples. Uh, people admire people who've gone to that, account, uh, to that level uh, in their lives. So I think leadership is found in all kinds of areas. I've happened to be uh, at the head of a number of companies and uh, played various C-suite roles. Uh, but so I, I would just say that everybody is being followed, is being watched, is nudging others to live a better life. So the experiences in my life, I mean, I, I would say that I started out at a very young age uh, with, uh, in school being elected to leadership roles. I didn't know why. I didn't particularly <laughs> seek them out, but I was thinking like a captain of the safety patrol. What does that mean? <laughs> well, it means you lower it, raise the flag at the end of every day and you, uh, you put the assignments out for the other safety patrols or whatever. So it's re not really leadership. It's just kind of a, an administrative function. But I got used to the idea of being in charge. Of mm. And one thing kind of led to another. And then I had early work experiences that uh, sort of led me to feel that, you know, I, I had kind of a duty to lead others to good places. Mm. It sounds like Folks, for instance, at school may have seen maybe tendencies of reliability in you to select you for these roles. Would you, does that resonate? I, I think so. I, I tend to be pretty serious. And uh, if there's a response, you? yeah, <laughs> if there's a, if something needs to be done, 
I, so whenever you, you know, you had these book report assignments where three or four would work on it. I would do all the work. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted yeah. to make sure we got the A. <laughs> Can I ask maybe your family, were you, how many siblings, what order? So I'm the oldest of five kids. Yeah. I uh, feel like the oldest kid you tends to be totally. reliable and have responsibilities. Yeah. No, there's no question about it. So it sounds like started having these experiences and then translated them into your professional environment. Yep. Beautiful. And then you've written so much, Joel, on challenges and how to deal with challenges. One of the things that sticks out for me there is that they will pass and the way you handle challenges is so important because in two-ish years, folks will look back and have that as a sense of what type of leader you are. Um, For me, I found some of the most changing times have been situations where I've had to let others down to kind of stand true to my own values is really hard for me but something i'm leaning into and then also times where i need to let go where i don't necessarily have control again type a big planner like to do everything i can to make something happen and you can't always have that Uh, and so just leaning into practicing in those situations as well and it's a work in progress it's a journey i'm curious what for you have been some of the biggest challenges you had to face yeah so first of all let me say something about challenges in general i think the first few times that i felt like i was really challenged my instinct was just to get through it, you know, just to yeah. muscle through and be tough and not let it get me down and, you know, put one foot in front of the next. Uh, the more that I've had, the more challenges I've had and met successfully, the more I embrace challenge and say, what can I learn from this? What led us into this situation? What did, how did I contribute to it? Uh, somebody said to me one time, you can't talk your way out of situations you've behaved your way into. And I think mm. that's a really important notion. A lot of people who are glib, feel like they can talk their way out of problems. But in many cases, you can't. You, you just have to behave your way out of them. I think that the issues of being trusted, transparent, honest, working hard, high commitment, all those things see you through challenges. That doesn't mean you won't face failure, but failure you can overcome. I think a lot of people feel like a failure of results is a failure that, that will dog them forever. My experience is not that at all. Uh, people will allow you to get up from a failure of results. What they won't allow is if it's a failure of character or a failure of effort. So if you lie, cheat, or steal, or you're just lazy, and therefore you have a challenge, something that hasn't worked out right, that's going to dog you for a long, long time. So I think you want to make sure your challenges, if you have a challenge that's a failure of, of outcome, you know, embrace it. You know, Figure out what to do better next time. Be transparent. Uh, and so most of the challenges that I've, I face now are really ones that just outcomes haven't been what I thought they might be. And it's not always my own fault, but... You know, I, I look forward. You know, the, the one of the worst things you can do is uh, look backward. You know, I always use the analogy of uh, Cortez at Santa Cruz where he burned the, the, uh, the boats. So mm-hmm. he had 11 boats that landed there at, at Veracruz and he burned uh, 10 of them. So the troops could not get back on the boat. And I've thought about the times that I've felt betrayed or really been challenged by something. I've always wanted to get back on the boat. You know, I, mm-hmm. want, to, I want to relive it. And so I've learned over time to burn the boats so I don't live in the past, but I just, I live in the future. Beautiful. I want to call out when you mentioned lying, cheating, stealing, these are the true potential mistakes that one makes, not necessarily the failures of outcome. And just this notion of, I think people are human too and make mistakes and can learn from them and grow from them. And Curious what your take is on giving folks a second chance. Well, I think I think we all deserve a second chance, but uh, I think if people lie or cheat or steal, they have to make it up. You know, I mean, th- there's this idea of reconciling, you know, mm-hmm. making things right. 
And typically it involves an apology and then an effort to really make things right, to set things right. And most people won't pay that price. You know, I've seen a lot of people make apologies that are something like, I'm sorry if you felt offended. And what I yeah, say, that's an accusation. That's right. not a, that's not an apology. That's an accusation. So you'll see in most apologies, particularly from politicians, you know, they are accusations. They're not real apologies. So I think there's a humility. And, uh, and then I think you, people have to then really be committed to doing the right thing. So I'm a big believer in second chances, but only if people go through the process of making it valid, making it real. Yeah, totally. The one example of that is very recent, top of mind, is Sam Bankman-Fried and crypto. And folks are saying that he willingly, knowingly defrauded investors. And I think there's a lot of chatter about what happens with him. And um, I think that to me comes to mind as something where it's like, do you give this person a second chance? What is the line that's drawn? Um, any thoughts here? Yeah, this goes so deep and was uh, so ongoing and involves a million investors and billions right. of dollars. And when I, and it was so egregious. What he did was so egregious. You know, he was basically stealing from accounts and buying properties in the Bahamas. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I, I mean, it just, it goes beyond, you know, I made a mistake, you know, right. I, it I seems guess. like willingly doing this knowingly over time. It wasn't like a character flaw in a moment where exactly. you made a mistake in a second and then changed your mind. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I want to transition to a piece that you wrote, Joel recently on feeling canceled with respect to the GSB community. And I wanted to first allow you to share context for what happened from your standpoint and would love to chat about it. Yeah. So uh, in sharing this, I don't want anybody to feel that I'm aggrieved or angry or wanting to relive it at all. Yeah. I, my, my sense is really that this is a violation of sort of free speech and open debate and things that should be happening in the academy. And to mm -hmm. shut that down is the thing that I find offensive. I felt pretty bulletproof in, in part because I won the teaching award. I won the alumni award. I've been the chairman of uh, the Hoover Institution. Um, I, I taught three of the 10 silver bullet classes there. Uh, I was always, I was, I was actually the person who brought the last lecture to Stanford, gave the only last lecture for a number of years, well before Randy Pouch did it and wrote the book about it. And then I've given it every year until this event happened and I was cut off from that. I was called in by the Dean, you know, all these things that just seemed crazy to me. And so it was actually kind of a surprise to me and a disappointment and, and a bit alienating, you know, and students uh, basically went directly to the Dean rather than come to me. And they said they felt alienated because I said I hired for character, competence and commitment. And I really mm -hmm. didn't pay attention to race, gender, sexual orientation or any of these other things, but those actually came along with, you know, I, and I'd had, I brought on several uh, black women uh, onto my board. I, you know, had, uh, I'd won every award for the LGBTQ community when I was chairman of JetBlue. So, I mean, that happened, but I wasn't selecting for that in part because I felt it wasn't really fair to minorities. You know, if you make that case, then actually it diminishes them and they don't deserve that. They can earn these positions and do earn these positions uh, every bit as much as anybody else. And so I always said, I'm going to hire for character competence and commitment. And guess what? A lot of them are going to be these minorities. And so yeah. uh, the, the response from the students who've turned me into the, to the dean were that uh, this was uh, inconsistent with the, the, whatever the values are, were of the GSB. And, and then the dean just called me. Rather than have me talk, I mean, what I would have done if I were in charge is I would say, okay, let's get together with these students and Joel, and you guys talk it out. I'll be happy mm -hmm. to arbitrate it if you want, but uh, you guys need to get together and talk. Instead, he called me. And I said, look, I don't need to teach 
here. I'm happy to do something else if this isn't a welcome message. And he said, no, you, you actually uh, need to stay here if you possibly can. And so I came back the next spring and uh, I was greeted by an associate dean who said, uh, there may be students appearing on your doorstep. You, you're going to be doxxed uh, for hate speech. And I said, what? He said, well, you wrote an article that said, uh, uh, great leaders always tell the truth. And I cited Joseph Goebbels as a party who had not, who proposed the big lie and the tragedy that uh, came from that and why we absolutely had to always tell the truth. Well, somehow the Jewish Student Union interpreted that, just the reference to Joseph Goebbels as hate speech. And so I met with them and I removed the great leaders uh, truth telling thing from mm -hmm. LinkedIn. And then I taught during the quarter, but it was a really disappointing quarter in that students felt like they were on the lookout for microaggressions, for unconscious bias, uh, for to be offended, you know, and uh, they were looking for evidence of oppression and, uh, you know, behaviors that I just didn't see. I said, we're here to learn how to manage and teach and, and grow businesses and lead. And, uh, you know, if, if all people are interested in are these uh, social psychology labels that they want to put on things, then maybe that's not what, what, I'm, what I'm here for. Yeah. Thank you for writing that and sharing your feelings. I know that that took a lot of courage and the time. And as you're sharing with me right now, I can tell how frustrated you are. In a way, I sense that you, you don't feel like these labels or accusations are accurate and you feel like you have a track record that demonstrates that. Well... So I think you're right, Jen, but it's really not about me. I, I, I've done a lot of things and I can take a lot of bullets and criticism yeah. and used to it. So it really isn't about me. I just feel sorry that these students are shielded, that they're so easily triggered, that they're on the lookout for ways to be offended. Uh, it just felt like they're actually missing out. We should have open debate. You know, we ought to be able to talk about all these things and not label people. People don't want to be labeled as, you know, you don't want to be labeled as an Asian woman. You want to be labeled mm -hmm. as a leader. And you deserve that. And you've paid the price for that. And so categorizing people and labeling them and then being afraid to have a discussion about any of these things, that's what troubles me. So I, I decided, how can I proactively deal with this thing? So I helped organize the free speech group at Stanford. I helped underwrite a free speech conference there. Uh, I've continued to write on LinkedIn. I, I post mm -hmm. every day something that I think may help people think about leadership in broader terms. So I'm not bitter. I'm not offended. My feelings aren't hurt. I don't get my feelings hurt. I, I just think what went on and why. Yeah, yeah. And then so coming to the importance of free speech, I so agree with you there. And to me, it feels like we are in an era where we are more connected than ever and talking more and more about feelings of various groups more than ever. And it feels like we're still learning how to share our feelings and thoughts with each other in a way that is productive. Um, why I wanted to have this discussion is I feel like there is so much room left on the table to have a productive conversation here. And I'd love to talk about how we can do this better in the future, where a group who maybe feels like something that one group said was aggressive can say that in a way that the other group can hear and listen to, and both groups can learn from each other. So um, there's a couple of things there. Uh, one yeah. is this idea that I actually think feelings are very individual and they get, mm. I think it starts with respecting other individuals and listening mm. to them and probing and get, getting to the point where you've really captured what it is they're saying. Uh, I actually think another thing is not living your whole life 
uh, within your own experience, my lived experience, my feelings. We've been taught to be aggrieved, to be victim. We're very much in an era where people are uh, thinking about their their gripes. You know, how have I been hurt? How how are my feelings been injured or whatever? And I think the more we can think about where are we going in the future? How can we make a better world? You know, how can we be inclusive? You know, in a way that really celebrates everybody. And I think the more we divide into tribes and label other people, uh, this this idea that uh, young people can't hear arguments that they don't agree with, I find that just astonishing, and uh, and really a very very much of a left turn in society. And, uh, and some of it is social media. Social media is such a rude place; uh, it's just not respectful. So I've decided, you know, I'll get attacked on social media from time to time, and I just always try to respond uh, politely and you know, thank people for their comments and just not engage. So everybody has to kind of come to this new level of comedy, C-O-M-I-T-Y, not E-D-Y. This new level of comedy where we say we care about each other, we love each other, we forgive each other, we move on, we're about the future. But living in the past and in our feelings, I think is one of the more unproductive things that has come to us from social psychology. Yeah, I have to agree and disagree. I love the notion of we absolutely need to focus on the future and be optimistic in fact, for the future, but also even further, like assume best intentions in one another. We are all humans. We are all imperfect, flawed, wanting to do the best we can. We're all figuring it out um, and wanting to do good. Also wanting to care for our families and whatnot. I think we all have that in common. I agree in the sense that social media, I think we have whatever 20% that are vocal and then the 1% that you end up hearing on Twitter or whatnot that are really not representative of the whole population, but these tend to be the voices that we all hear. The one part I want to push back on is the notion of feelings, not really focusing too much on feelings. I think there's a way to do that productively where we can be more in touch with one another and feel more connected with each other when we share our feelings. Um, and I think the, the piece that's less productive is when it's coming from a negative standpoint of view and maybe not necessarily assuming the best intention from one another. And on this note, I wanted to talk about how can we create a more, hmm, an environment where we can talk to each other more. I love what you said as well about, it's not like maybe not focusing so much of with groups and talking to one another as individuals. For me, something that comes to mind is how do we create an environment of higher learning and in institutions where we can create more open debate, where folks can feel like they have a safe space to express themselves and not feel so much like if you have a conservative opinion, for instance, um, that that gets shut down, which tends to be kind of the general, I went to Harvard Kennedy School and um, tends to be the general consensus these days. Um, how, how do you feel like higher institutions can create more of that environment and productive debate, which is such an important tool, especially for young folks today? Yeah. Well, I think from a school standpoint, if you're an administrator, I think you have to make sure that any speaker who comes on campus is allowed to speak and mm -hmm. you throw people off campus. I mean, I think one of the bad things that's happened on the campus is students are seen as customers. And mm. the idea that you have a net promoter score and there's so much money involved and everything, administrators tend to bow to the flavor of student. You know, if students object to something, then they uh, they don't really stand up for the principles. And so we, we consequently don't have full and open debate over a bunch of things. And I think there, I think you can see this with this whole COVID thing. I think there are a bunch of scientists and doctors who said, wait a minute, we've got data that shows other things, but they're shut down. They're cut out of the, the public square. Their licenses, yeah. people are fired or whatever. My sense would be, in fact, when I was in charge of real things, I used to assign people to make the opposite case. So if we were all mm -hmm. leaning as a board to doing something, I would assign somebody to come in and make the opposite case. I said, we want to hear that. We want to hear the very best arguments. 
and sometimes they prevailed. And so to me, this idea of free and open dialogue, I remember in, 19, in 2008, I think it was, when there was kind of a meltdown in the financial system, there was a debate between free market economists and Marxists. It was held in Europe. And it was fascinating. It was very respectful. And there were great points made by both sides. Everybody learned. And you knew at the end why you thought whatever you thought. You, you had a yeah. sense of, okay, I, and, but you had more respect for the other side. So to me, I think one of the things the universities must do is become a safe place for all ideas. It's one of these places where people can, uh, I mean, when we held this free speech forum, forum, I think there was a communist that came and spoke. I mean, everybody was welcome to come and express mm -hmm. the view. That's what should happen. Yeah. And I want to zoom out to highlight why I think this is so important. Look at the political environment, for instance, in the United States, uh, regardless of political affiliation, some voices have been banned on some platforms. And then you look at Ukraine and Russia, um, you just have various examples of extremism that's happening and folks living in bubbles and then folks getting shocked with maybe discovering how half the population thinks. And to me, it feels like we are getting more divided as a result of not having conversations with one another. Exactly. And then to me, what's so important that gets lost in all this is feelings of safety and then just this expression, which can bring us closer together. So just what is the downside of not having or not practicing this type of discussion is we become more polarized and more, more spread apart. And to me, it's really important as well for higher institutions to cultivate this type of environment, because if you're, if you're educating the next generation of leaders or just folks in general who are going out into the world, you want to be able to have these skill sets. Yep. I totally agree. And, and I actually think beyond kind of the political, I think if you're running a company, starting a company, if you bought a company or whatever, you want the fresh air of new ideas to flow through and they're not being restricted. One of the things I always learned was it's better to get decisions pushed further out uh, than most centralized organizations feel. Push the decisions yeah. all the way out to closest to the customer. Make sure that you hear the opposite side. So yeah. I, I'm a big believer in small government. I, I actually think that local is better. They, it, there are mistakes that are made, but I think smaller. I've seen what happens with bureaucracies. They become totalitarian. There becomes a right way of doing things. And so to me, breaking things apart, I've seen that happen in big companies too. You break them apart and all the pieces flourish. And then innovation happens. Now, of course, I teach entrepreneurship and I've been an entrepreneur and I've backed hundreds of entrepreneurs. But I see that's a much more vital, vibrant, creative environment, this one where everything gets central and somebody speaks ex cathedra. And so I think we have to break things up and localize. And again, people talk person to person and we don't categorize people. Anytime we categorize people and say, well, this group of people is always this way or that way. Labeling people means you have a flimsy argument in my mm -hmm. mind. Labeling people and name calling just means you've lost the argument. And that's a lot of what's going on now. Yeah. The type of environment I'd love to see built. We talk to folks who we know we have different opinions from and try to learn at least one thing from that person and challenge our thought process. And, and having challenge these them, see if their argument holds up. Right. You know? Right. I mean, that's how you, it, it was just Justice Brandeis who said that uh, sunshine is the best disinfectant. You know, mm -hmm. idea of letting letting things out in the sunshine so people can look at it, it will actually weed out the bad ideas. But you yeah. have to be willing to expose them and talk about them and debate them and challenge people that with, with whom you disagree. But today, I think most people that I know say, I don't dare speak up. You know, I'm not mm. saying anything. I don't want to be canceled. I want to keep my job. I want to whatever. And so things go underground and they fester and bad ideas get worse and people become more polarized. So to me, it's this idea of sunshine will be the best disinfectant. Let's talk. Yeah. And 
I imagine that's very hard for anyone, myself, like considering challenging someone who I disagree with, I may feel very emotional about this topic. How does one enter these types of conversations? How do we begin? How do we take the first step to moving toward that? It's a great question. And a lot of people have written a lot and thought a lot about it. My experience has been uh, to basically just capture what it is you're saying, not try to make my argument. So if we, if, if I knew you and I disagreed on something, I would say, tell me more about that. Tell me what has led you to feel that way. What are the arguments? How does this stack up against this other set of experiences? So what I'm hearing you say is, and then I try to state your thesis in a way that you say you've actually captured it. Once you feel that I've actually captured your thesis, I've heard you, I've understood you, then odds are you're going to be interested in what I have to say. Before that, you're not. And so, and you may not be even then. If you're not, then it's fine with me. You know, I have at least given somebody a chance to express themselves. But it has to start out. Listening is the greatest show of respect. You know, really a caring listener really shows love and respect for another human being. And we don't do that anymore. We don't listen to each other. <laughs> and, and so, and I, and I lay it at the feet of our politicians. They've learned how to divide us. And uh, th this idea of uh, triangulating, you know, building coalitions, you know, and hating the other side. The other people have to be deplorable or they have to be radical leftists or, you know, whatever label we apply, we just say, we don't even want to talk to them anymore. And that's the beginning of the end, in my way of thinking. I think we need leadership who is saying, I want to carry on a conversation and really be open and embracing. And it starts with respect. And uh, we don't have leaders that are that way right now. That doesn't, politics does not pull that kind of people in. The other thing that comes to mind as you're sharing that for me is acknowledging that there are shades of gray. So not labeling and it's so unfair because there's so much nuance there yeah. and folks have different ways of thinking. For instance, conservatives versus liberals, um, there's so much nuance into each of those views and standpoints and it's so unfair to just label an entire group of people and also just bringing that to the table into these kinds of conversations and trying to understand A, the nuances and the shades of gray and B, how did those opinions get formed? And like you said, capturing and sharing your point of view as well and having more of a conversation where both people are open. So have you read The uh, Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt? No, I'm not. H-A-I-D-T. Uh, he's a social psychologist. He was a, a consultant to the Democrat Party to help them defeat Republicans. And uh, he's written about, you know, why are we so polarized? Very insightful view on this kind of thing. I think that's a great starting point if more and more people could read that and understand why. What is it? What's in it? My wife always asks this question when people are acting in strange ways. She said, there must be something in it for them. And yeah. I think that's what I've figured out is there's something in it for them. I think even when you say conservatives are liberals, you know, that's painting with a very broad brush, you know, and if I think yeah. it's all kinds of flavors within each of those mm -hmm. labels. And uh, I think it's Ben Shapiro that says there really are three groups. They're really the liberals, the conservatives, and then the kind of the, yeah. the progressives that are more left wing altogether. And the coalitions are being formed now and people are joining groups without really talking. They're just joining labels. And so I, th I actually think there's a lot of really flimsy argumentation made on all sides of issues because the people aren't talking. We're no longer embracing open conversation, open, respectful conversation with real care. And so to me, that's what I, what I care. When I had my decision to say, you know, I want to, I want to write down my, what my experience is. It was really to encourage people to say, this isn't right. You know, we wanted people to talk. We don't want to drive people out. So I got called a racist by a student. And uh, I said, really? He said, and, and I said, uh, do you realize I've sent two Haitians all the way through college 
I've sent a Nepalese student all the way through college, paid for all of their stuff. And I just gave him kind of a thing and says, what have you done? And of course they hadn't done anything except virtue signal. And so I said, let's turn it into actions. You know, let's talk about it and turn it into actions rather than label me, you know? Yeah. Curious, did you end up having a discussion with the students that had turned you into the dean? No, they, they never did want to talk about it. They were, they, they were, they were gender studies majors and they had a certain lens through which they viewed the whole world. And so mm -hmm. they were really collecting data for their, that worldview and they didn't really want to talk it through. And so mm -hmm. I, I, I think it's a minority. So most of my friends are liberal. Uh, I'm relatively conservative. I'm actually fairly liberal socially and fairly conservative uh, fiscally. So I'm kind mm -hmm. of an odd combination, but it's like yeah. my friends, they say, I don't feel like the far left and I don't feel like the far right. And I would say that right. 60 to 70% of people feel like they are somewhere in between these vo very vocal extremes that mm -hmm. all the airspace and because of our primary system, we end up with people who tend to be at the far edges of the probability distribution. And so to me, more dialogue, a better system of electing leaders, uh, uh, changes to social media, et cetera, we could actually restore the center. And that's yeah. really what has to happen. But until that happens, and so in my, from my tiny perch, I, know, I used to have a larger perch, I have a tiny perch now, which is a few students every year at Stanford. What I'm gonna say is I'm in favor of free speech. You can't say mm -hmm. it will offend me, and, but I'm not gonna back down from anything that I uh, say either. And I'm welcome and open to dialogue at any point in time. Let's. If your argument's so flimsy, you can't discuss it, right. then, you know, we're not going to make any progress. So you're still teaching, and these are the values that you bring to the students and invite them into. Yeah, and some students love it and feel welcome and say, thank heavens, don't, please don't leave. <laughs> and others say, let's get this clown out of here, you know, so uh, which is fine. Yeah, um, I would love to invite folks to, of all backgrounds, to just have more conversations, lean into debates leaning to conversations of folks you believe you have different opinions with. I think you'll be surprised by how much you have in common. And as long as both parties are open, I think you'll find some common ground there and maybe even become great friends. Yeah. So uh, it's great that you're doing that. And I hope anyone else who wanted to chat about things that they felt were intention can, can feel like they can come forward, but it's a work in progress still. And it starts with respectful listening. I think if you mm -hmm. basically make your agenda, I want to be an active listener. I was written up in uh, the New York Times one time in this corner office thing uh, by Adam Bryant, who used to write the mm -hmm. office column, the New York Times. And I had no idea what he was going to write about at the end. We spent an hour together and then he writes this little column and he said uh, something about listening uh, without agenda. You know? right. And that was his takeaway of my leadership style is listening without an agenda, you know, capturing facts and just listening. And, and so mm -hmm. non-judgmental capturing agenda often is very persuasive in getting other parties to nudge towards something else where if you're trying to pound them and get them right. to believe something else, they actually put up resistance. So, yeah, absolutely. And I so appreciate Joel, just from this conversation, we don't know each other before this, but just from this conversation I'm seeing, I feel like you're open, uh, obviously respectful, action oriented, and just have great intentions. Um, before we transition, I wanted to ask, what did you learn from this experience? Would you say, I feel like it's fairly new. It's a new era of communication that we're in. We talk about wokeism, et cetera. What do you feel like it taught you? So I guess there are several things. The productive one I learned was that, uh, I need to keep, uh, 
I, I need to not back down from saying what I think is truth and making myself open to students. I, I probably spend as much time with students as anybody on the faculty because my office yeah. door is open and they can, they can talk with me. Uh, but I did learn some things about uh, university administration, how centralized it is, how dependent on funding it is, how, uh, how it's closed down a lot of openness and free speech. And, uh, and so I don't feel anger over that. I feel sadness. I think we've lost something as a society. So, and I guess my conclusion is, is there any way that I can help bring that back? Hmm. Yeah. Hopefully we can spark this as one of the conversations that can spark other conversations with administrations across the country uh, and move toward that. Yeah. So let's transition, Joel, to doing. <laughs> we talked a lot about leadership and how this whole conversation breeds leaders and I mentioned how I think it's important for leaders to be able to have dialogue with folks that are different from them. Talk about diversity of opinion. The more the teams that have more conflict tend to be more productive. And so just leaning into that conflict now seems to be a tough time for folks in business, Joel. And arguably, we've been in this tough time since 2020, since COVID happened. Folks had to lay off people. Lots of growth happened through that. And now we're looking at potentially a recession next year. Many are maybe worried about that. And I wanted to ask you, you've got such great experience in a ton about this um, and get some of your advice for some groups of people. If that works for you, I'll read out some other groups. Does that work? Okay. So we've got hardworking job seekers who've recently been laid off. And this is folks who got laid off because a company needed to do what it had to do to survive, stay afloat. What would you say to, to these folks that just got laid off? Well, we've got a tight job market now. So I would say stay busy, stay optimistic, learn what you can from this period. I mean, my biggest learning times were in tough times, in adversity, mm -hmm. when things were unclear. And I found that plowing ahead, keeping my head up, you know, solving problems, you know, I've done more minimum wage jobs probably than anybody you've ever met. You know, I've been sugar beets, been a busboy, a dishwasher, a lab assistant, a French teacher, you know, I, 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 and, and, and those things are all with a lot of blue collar workers rolling yeah. up your sleeves. You end up finding people where they are and you end up caring about them. You end up respecting them. And I think you've heard me use the word respect a lot of times. I think people yawn, yearn for respect. And so get in a place where you can respect other people and make the most of it. Don't feel bad for yourself. Don't feel like a victim. It, uh, and so we, for about 15 years at JetBlue, we never furloughed anybody. In fact, I'm not sure we've ever furloughed anybody at JetBlue. Mm. And part of our reason was we didn't want a union. We didn't want to speak to our own employees through the intermediary of a union. And we were able to keep unions out for a long time. But in today's labor market, the unions have come in. You know, a pilot will spend $60,000 over their career to be union represented. And I can make the case pretty well that they don't get $60,000 worth of value Back. out of that. So I think if, if you can have these direct relationships uh, that are respectful, you know, and so learn how to do that. Use this period of time to say, how can I connect with all forms and regard adversity, just like challenge, as, um, as a moment to learn, to grow, to get a different optic on life. Uh, so yeah. I think the whole idea of feeling aggrieved or angry, I just won't allow it in my life. And I've faced some really tough, uh, tough times. And I've actually come out better. I, 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 um, I've written about uh, moving into a rental house that was falling down with our kids. You know, the only way that I could survive was by selling this big house we owned in Atherton and using that money to uh, reboot myself at age 48. And so the kids had to live in this fall down, falling down house. Uh, and they said, Dad, we loved it. 
We could put stars <laughs> on the ceiling, throw the ball around that. We could do all these things. They loved it. And we, yeah. we had a really happy times there. And yeah. so adversity it can really be a great thing. So while I feel for it and feel for those folks, I would say stay busy, learn from mm-hmm. it, uh, take a job, do something. Um, things will come back. They always do. Is this the story when your water wasn't working in the house, your sinks weren't working in the house and your wife asked you to do the dishes and you had to go do this outside in the garden with the garden? That was at the very beginning of my travails. And I okay. came back because <laughs> I was washing the dishes out on the lawn with a garden hose. And uh, but yeah. it got worse from there. Yeah. I resonate with this sense of like diamonds are built under pressure and there's so much good that can come from adversity. A story that comes to mind from my experience is, so from, I'm from Sierra Leone, West Africa, mm-hmm. and I had been running a nonprofit in the country and then Ebola happened and I needed to leave and came to the U.S. under a TPS visa, which was issued as like a refugee status because of Ebola in Sierra Leone. And I was considering going to business school, but I was going to do it the next year. And then Ebola got under control and um, President Obama said, okay, we don't need the TPS anymore. And for me, it was like, oh, shoot, I, my visa is expiring. What am I going to do? And that's when I applied to the GSB and I was under a ton of pressure. I like studied for the GMAT in like a month, which was crazy. I was very stressed, um, but I made it to the GSB and it's been one of the biggest opportunities yep. in my life, opened so many doors. And so that was a period of a ton of growth that happened in a time that seemed really stressful. Um, it's almost so, always that way, Jen. You know, I, I've told yeah. uh, some people that, you know, what I went through with litigation at kind of in mid-career that was, was sort of financially threatening uh, right. I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy, and yet I would never have wanted to miss what I learned from that experience, the greatest learning experience of my life to go through. What did you learn? Well, I mean, number one, I realized that nobody could take away from me family, faith, mm-hmm. friends, you know, all the things that were really important in life were not at risk. In fact, they were deepening and getting better and stronger. Only the really superficial things, you know, my position, my net worth, those were at risk, mm. you know, and that felt very threatening. And you know, I pay, I spent a lot of my life building those up, but I found that I could rebuild them, you know. Right. It gives you a ton of perspective of what's important. Exactly. And how to a large extent you already have what you need, which gives you, a, which can give you so much strength. All right. Sending strength to job seekers. Maybe if I would say, if you're interested in building a company of your own or an endeavor of your own or trying something completely new, potentially this might be this time in life to do that. All right. And then Joel, high performing employees who are worried about furloughs. I know friends who are at startups, they're very high performing type A and wanting to make sure that they can stay safe in the job market. What would you say to them? I would say relax. You know, if you have great skills, if you have high character, if you have interpersonal skills, uh, do something while you keep looking around. Don't panic. Don't become negative. Don't sense you're a victim. All those things you will exude. If you say I'm a victim, you will come across as aggrieved and bitter and whatever. Don't allow that to enter your life. You know, say, how am I going to embrace this moment? What am I going to learn from this? If you end up having to roll up your sleeves and work in a blue collar or a tough job, embrace it. You'll learn a ton, just like I did. I learned a ton doing that. One of the things I learned is I'm going to always respect the people that work by the sweat of their brow. I'm never going to dismiss them. I'm going to just totally honor them um, because they really do bear this muscular work that gets done in this world deserves respect. And a lot of times people, mm-hmm. your education or my education, think we're above it. And I think that's mm-hmm. a mistake. So learning that one lesson is totally worth it. 
Absolutely. And then high integrity leaders that are needing to furlough folks to keep the business alive. Well, they, if they have high integrity, then they, what you said is they need to furlough leaders to keep the business alive. So they have to do what's consistent with reality. High integrity means that you live according to your, there's no gap between your values and your actions. So if your values to say, I've got to preserve this business for the benefit of my suppliers, my lenders, my shareholders, my employees, and my communities, I've got to do what I can to submit. And what that means is I'm going to have to lay some people off. I'm going to have to reorganize. I'm going to have to refinance. I'm going to have to do what you have to, to be consistent. So your behaviors match your values. And then I think everything tends to work out. Maybe uncomfortable in the moment. I'm not saying that you, I'm not Pollyanna about it. I've had to lay off a lot of people. I had to fire a lot of people. I've had, I've had some setbacks myself, but you will recover from it. If you deal with respect, transparency, high trust, honesty, high character, you'll recover in ways that you can't imagine today. And practical advice for how to lay folks off in a way that is respectful. Well, I think you have to, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of situations that are different. I would say that if it's a whole team or division or city that you're laying off, gather them all together. You meet with them personally. Don't send out a, I don't know if you saw Up in the Air with George Clooney and Anna Kendrick, that movie about <laughs> hiring professionals to let people go. I think that's the worst idea in the world. Own it, yeah. you know, and help people be generous. Give people the most generous way of, and then give them uh, the best path to a new job. You know, be there for them. Uh, you know, and it's again, this idea of, I care about you. I respect you. I want what's best for you. Right now, we can't afford this in this company. We can't do this. This is not our priority. Give them as much uh, notice as you possibly can. Give them as generous a package as you possibly can because you're building a brand. It's going to affect how you uh, behave the rest of your business life. So I think those are good rules. But you have to do what you have to do. And most people will forgive you for that and they'll understand it. In fact, uh, some of my good friends and investors are people that I've let go or whatever. And you can maintain relationships. Yeah, I will say people can tell if you care yeah. by the way you do this, exactly. if you're coming from the heart or if you're being disingenuous and just pretending. And then last group of folks, Joel, entrepreneurs who have found meaningful work and maybe looking to grow their team or business in this time, what would you say to them? Well, I think this is actually one of the best times. There have been a ton of great businesses that have been built in down times. I think yeah. people are more available. The capital you get uh, really believes in you because it's not available everywhere. I mean, a whole bunch of good uh, dating factors occur that allow you to be more successful. So this is a great time to, uh, to buy a business, to start a business, but you need to understand there are certain roadblocks. You have to do it with a special care and be particularly intentional about what you're doing. But I would not be at all discouraged by this being a kind of a scary time. Yeah, totally. We have, I think, 10 of the biggest unicorns were formed during recessions. You have Google, Airbnb, Slack. Great time to be innovative while keeping budgets small. Yep. What can you do with very little? And then to your point, talent is available and looking and great time to build. Yep. All right. Joel, we talk about meaningful work and purposeful work. So having a work to do, and this can be a really elusive term. So I wanted us to take a moment to just define that as someone who's spent, you spent so much time in your career talking and teaching about this, what is meaningful work and how can one, how does one know that they're doing meaningful work? So a lot of people talk about passion, finding a passion, and that becomes kind of a, a substitute for what you're talking about. You know, find your passion and pursue it is the advice that gets given by everybody. A lot of people, and, and I'm one of them, get to kind of 35 or 40 years old and they say, shoot, I haven't found my passion. You know, I'm not <laughs> passionate about any, any one thing, any one industry, any one product. 
uh, any one activity. And what I decided was I'm really passionate about other people, about them being yeah. successful. You know, so I've helped hundreds of people become multimillionaires. Uh, and that's a passion that I've got. I love creating jobs. I love turning around bad situations. I love young people. So I, I've found that really by turning outward and saying, how can I make a difference in the lives of others, no matter the industry? So I'm a bit industry agnostic, you know, and I've, so I've been involved in lots of different kinds of industries. I always learn a lot, but the center, the, the uh, unifying factor are the human beings coming together as a team, honoring one another and creating something that's great that they all grow and benefit from. So I, I guess I, you could say I've learned to be passionate about that process. So I've not found the passion that Steve Jobs found or that we celebrate so often, but I've really found a passion around operationalizing things and making things work. And uh, so I would how, say just how does, thinking more broadly about it. Sorry. Yeah, no, no. And how does this, you said you've learned to find the passion in the process. What does that passion feel like for folks looking to have a sense of when they've found the passion or the meaningful work or the purpose? It feels like you're turned outward, not inward. I think what does that mean? Once you've found the passion, you care about the other people that are working there. You care about their futures. You care about their careers. You care about Mm -hmm. their decisions. You care about how they're doing. You stick your nose in their office to say, how did, how did your child's soccer game go? Not because you think that's going to make them like you, but because you care. Mm -hmm. Um, And all of a sudden you're not thinking about yourself. And when, when that happens, you're no longer aggrieved. You're no longer offended. You're no longer angry. You, you actually, or what is love? We didn't. You, you cut out the love part. You are actually <laughs> we can talk about it. people, and so uh, this idea of learning how to love, and what that really means is that you're caring about other people. And so I've always talked about transferring what most people do use in business as motivators are fear and reward, and th- that's a two-edged sword that is really powerful. You can get people to do almost anything by creating a big downside and a big upside, and just slashing and burning. And, and what I've said is, if you can move your life to one that you're dispensing a sense of duty, which is often around meaning and love, which is around caring and respect. If you can make that the center of your life, you're not going to have time for anger, uh, gr- grief, aggrieved, and aggrieved, yeah. et cetera. So. Yeah, that really resonates with me. Beautiful. Speaking of purpose, Joel, and coming back to the beginning of our conversation, you told me a little bit about the brand that you're building and how you think about yourself in five words. The other thing you mentioned when it comes to looking at one's life and this notion of being happy in life and having purpose is think about your legacy as a way of figuring out how you want to live your life and think about maybe at your funeral, how would you want folks to remember you? May I ask you what you want your legacy to be, Joel? Yeah, I'm, I'm not working to be remembered. I, uh, I really want my, my business associates to be happy and successful and my children to feel uh, empowered, happy, successful. I would make a slight, I think I've grown a little bit in my notion of happiness. So I I actually think there's sort of a four element progression that starts with pleasure. You know, Mm. infant feels pleasure, is full, uh, has has been changed, uh, et cetera. That's pleasurable for infant. And a lot of people stay in that level. Then they move to happiness, which is a sense of well-being. And I think you can do a lot to solve for happiness, the sense of well-being in life. I've since learned, though, that um, if you actually move to, to joy, is a higher level. Joy is something you can conjure up. Joy is related to meaning. If you have meaning in your life, something that's deep, you can feel joy in awkward situations. You can remember that book you read, that place you visited, that person you were with. So joy is a higher level. And the highest level for me, what I would love to be 
what I'd love to achieve, and therefore I might be remembered for, is peace. That I'm at peace. Mm. I'm at peace with the world. I'm at peace with my friends. I'm at peace with my enemies. I'm at peace with everything. So you, you brought up what happened to me at Stanford. I'm totally at peace with that. Um, and I'm, I, I'm going to make the best out of whatever happens to me. I'm just going to make the best. Out. I'm going to be at peace with it. I think that's kind of the highest level of achievement. The one last thing I'll say about this whole thing is when, when you gave this idea of someone to love, a work to do, and um, person to be. person to be, I just wanted to make sure that you knew that came from the writings of Frederick Buechner, who was an mm. early 20th century uh, philosopher and theologian. And so I borrowed that. I think that's a really powerful way to think about your life, but I don't want to take credit for it. It's not mine. Thank you. Thank you. I feel like so much of what, like we are all borrowing things, right? And so it's, it's wonderful that you brought him up just now. And this notion of peace sounds lovely. My last question is, do we ever figure it out? I, I look at life as a continual process of figuring things out. We are all learning and growing and evolving. In your experience, does one ever figure it out? So do you know the term mensch? Is that a term? No. It's a Yiddish word. Uh, so Yiddish is kind of the German Hebrew uh, mm -hmm. vernacular that is common among European Jews, especially. And they have this term mensch. Uh, so menches are people who just have wisdom. They have peace in the foxhole. They are they're amazing people. So there are a few old, what I call old souls. Right. You can just rely on them to dispense wisdom and to have overcome their feelings they don't feel anger. They feel sadness. They don't feel, mm. uh, you know, they, they've translated all of these negative feelings into a better version. And so I think they have achieved a level of understanding and wisdom that I'm still striving for. And uh, I think it's, I think it's a goal to have, but I think very few arrive at. Yeah. Yeah. Same. I'm on that journey. Yep. Joel, what's up for you today before I let you go? What is bringing you excitement, joy? Well, we've got a company party tonight, which is meeting all up here in Park City, which is really, really fun. People bring spouses and maybe even, kids, I don't know. Uh, so I, I look forward to this season connecting with people in a less professional way. So that's, that's beautiful. The docket for and happy holidays to you and your family. And thank you so much for being with me today. You too. Let's stay in touch. I want to hear more about your background. Let's yeah. Sierra Leone a little bit with the diamond trade and what we're on. Yeah, I would love to. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like what you hear, leave a review and share.